Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Tonight we have something special for you. This evening will be the first of three episodes in which we will showcase three of this past year's Bram Stoker Award nominees and winner for achievement in short fiction. Unfortunately, we were unable to gain rights for a couple nominees to air them, so you'll have to seek them out and give them a read yourself. Before we start in on our fiction, Tales to Terrify was alerted that we've been nominated for another Parsec Award. 
The nomination is for Goodbye to All That by G.L. McDorman, which was read by our own Drew Sebastini in episode 299 as our first nomination, and we appear to have a few more that may be appearing. Although we have been the grateful recipient of a parsec in the past, this year we're facing some tough competition. Our friends at Pseudopod have quite a few nominations, as well as some from our own District of Wonders. Farfetch Fables, may it rest in peace, and Starship Sofa has a good number of appearances as well. Congratulations to all, and we're all happy to see that quality podcasting is alive and well. Our first story of the night to warm us up for the Stoker nominees that we'll hear tonight and the next two weeks will be from the master of horror, Algernon Blackwood. Over the years, we've heard a good amount of Algernon Blackwood. I've linked to his entry on Wikipedia, and I have to say his biographical information is a bit sparse. His two best-known pieces, The Wendigo and The Willows, have both been heard here on Tales to Terrify. For those of you who have not heard the other episodes, I'd recommend that you take a look through our archives and check them out. Even though I narrated the lengthy story, The Willows, I think that I enjoy the story, The Wendigo, more. So, start there. I'll introduce Algernon Blackwood with a quote from his Wikipedia page that I enjoyed. My fundamental interest, I suppose, is signs and proofs of other powers that lie hidden in us all. The extension, in other words, of human faculty. So many of my stories, therefore, deal with extension of consciousness, speculative and imaginative treatment of possibilities outside our normal range of consciousness. Also, all that happens in our universe is natural, under law, but an extension of our so limited normal consciousness can reveal new, extraordinary powers, etc. And the word supernatural seems the best word for treating these in fiction. I believe it possible for our consciousness to change and grow, and that with this change we may become aware of a new universe. A change in consciousness, in its type, I mean, is something more than a mere extension of what we already possess. And no. Listen with me to Algernon Blackwood's The Empty House, from his first published book, The Empty House and Other Ghost Stories. Certain houses, like certain persons, manage somehow to proclaim at once their character for evil. In the case of the latter, no particular feature need betray them. They may boast an open countenance and an ingenious smile, and yet a little of their company leaves the unalterable conviction that there is something radically amiss with their being, that they are evil. Willy-nilly, they seem to communicate an atmosphere of secret and wicked thoughts, which make those in their immediate neighborhood shrink from them as from a thing diseased. And, perhaps, with houses the same principle is operative. And it is the aroma of evil deeds committed under a particular roof, long after the actual doers have passed away, that makes the goose flesh come and the hair rise something of the original passion of the evildoer and of the horror felt by his victim enters the heart of the innocent watcher, and he becomes, suddenly, conscious of tingling nerves, creeping skin, and chilling of the blood. 
he is terror-stricken without apparent cause. There was manifestly nothing in the external appearance of this particular house to bear out the tales of the horror that was said to reign within. It was neither lonely nor unkept. It stood, crowded into a corner of the square, and looked exactly like the houses on either side of it. It had the same number of windows as its neighbours, the same balcony overlooking the gardens, the same white steps leading up to the heavy black front door, and, in the rear, there was the same narrow strip of green, with neat box borders running up to the wall that divided it from the backs of the adjoining houses. Apparently, too, the number of chimney pots on the roof was the same. The breadth and angle of the eaves, and even the height of the dirty area railings. And yet, this house in the square, that seemed precisely similar to its fifty ugly neighbours, was as a matter of fact entirely different. Horribly different. Wherein lay this marked, invisible difference is impossible to say. It cannot be ascribed wholly to the imagination, because persons who had spent some time in the house, knowing nothing of the facts, had declared positively that certain rooms were so disagreeable, they would rather die than enter them again, and that the atmosphere of the whole house produced in them symptoms of a genuine terror while the series of innocent tenants who had tried to live in it and been forced to decamp at the shortest possible notice was indeed little less than a scandal in the town. When Shorthouse arrived to pay a weekend visit to his Aunt Julia in her little house on the seafront at the other end of the town, he found her charged to the brim with mystery and excitement. He had only received her telegram that morning and he had come anticipating boredom. But the moment he touched her hand and kissed her apple-skin-wrinkled cheek, he caught the first wave of her electrical condition. The impression deepened when he learned there were to be no other visitors, and that he had been telegraphed for with a very special object. Something was in the wind, and the something would doubtless bear fruit, for this elderly spinster aunt, with a mania for physical research, had brains as well as willpower, and by hook or by cook, she usually managed to accomplish her ends. The revelation was made soon after tea, when she sidled close up to him, as they paced slowly along the seafront in the dusk. I've got the keys! she announced in a delighted yet half-awesome voice. Got them till Monday. The keys of the bathing machine, or... He asked innocently, looking from the sea to the town. Nothing brought her so quickly to the point as feigning stupidity. Neither, she whispered. I've got the keys of the haunted house in the square, and I'm going there tonight. Shorthouse was conscious of the slightest possible tremor down his back, he dropped his teasing tone. Something in her voice and manner thrilled him. She was in earnest. But you can't go alone, he began. That's why I wired for you, she said with decision. He turned to look at her, 
The ugly-lined, enigmatical face was alive with excitement. There was the glow of genuine enthusiasm round it like a halo. The eyes shone. He caught another wave of her excitement and a second tremor. More marked than the first accompanied it. Thanks, Aunt Julia, he said politely. Thanks awfully. I should not dare to go quite alone, she went on, raising her voice. But with you I should enjoy it immensely. You're afraid of nothing, I know. Thanks so much, he said again. Uh, is anything likely to happen? A great deal has happened, she whispered, though it's been most cleverly hushed up. Three tenants have come and gone in the last few months, and the house is said to be empty for good now. In spite of himself, Shorthouse became interested. His aunt was so very much in earnest. The house is very old indeed, she went on. And the story, an unpleasant one, dates a long way back. It has to do with a murder committed by a jealous stableman, who has some affair with a servant in the house. One night he managed to secret himself in the cellar, and when everyone was asleep, he crept upstairs to the servants' quarters, chased the girl down to the next landing, and before anyone could come to the rescue, threw her body over the banisters into the hall below. And the stableman was caught, I believe, and hanged for murder. But it all happened a century ago, and I have not been able to get more details of the story. Shorthouse now felt his interest thoroughly aroused, but though he was not particularly nervous for himself, he hesitated a little on his aunt's account. On one condition, he said at length. Nothing will prevent my going, she said firmly. But I may as well hear your condition. That you guarantee your power of self-control if anything really horrible happens. I mean, that you are sure you won't get too frightened. Jim, she said scornfully. I am not young, I know. But nor are my nerves. But with you I should be afraid of nothing in the world. This, of course, settled it. For Shorthouse had no pretensions to being other than a very ordinary young man, and an appeal to his vanity was irresistible. He agreed to go. Instinctively, by a sort of subconscious preparation, he kept himself and his forces well in hand the whole evening, compelling an accumulative reserve of control by that nameless inward process of gradually putting all the emotions away and turning the key upon them, a process difficult to describe, but wonderfully effective, as all men who have lived through severe trials of the inner man well understand. Later, it stood him in good stead, but it was not until half-past ten, when they stood in the hall, well in the glare of friendly lamps, and still surrounded by comforting human influences, that he had to make the first call upon this store of collected strength. For once the door was closed, and he saw the deserted silent street stretching away white in the moonlight before them, it came to him clearly that the real test that night would be in dealing with two fears instead of one. He would have to carry his aunt's fear as well as his own and as he glanced down at her sphinx-like countenance and realized that it might assume no pleasant aspect in a rush of real terror, 
he felt satisfied with only one thing in the whole adventure, that he had the confidence in his own will and power to stand against any shock that might come. Slowly, they walked along the empty streets of the town. A bright autumn moon silvered the roofs, casting deep shadows. There was no breath of wind, and the trees in the formal gardens by the seafront watched them silently as they passed along. To his aunt's occasional remarks, Shorthouse made no reply. Realizing that she was simply surrounding herself with mental buffers, saying ordinary things to prevent herself thinking of extraordinary things. Few windows showed lights, and from scarcely a single chimney came smoke or sparks. Shorthouse had already begun to notice everything, even the smallest details. Presently, they stopped at the street corner, and looked up at the name on the side of the house, full in the moonlight, and with one accord but without remark, turned into the square and crossed over to the side of it that lay in shadow. The number of the house is thirteen, whispered a voice at his side, and neither of them made the obvious reference, but passed across the broad sheet of moonlight and began to march up the pavement in silence. It was about halfway up the square that Shorthouse felt an arm slip quietly but significantly into his own, and knew then that their adventure had begun in earnest, and that his companion was already yielding imperceptibly to the influences against them. She needed support. A few minutes later, they stopped before a tall, narrow house that rose before them into the night, ugly in shape and painted a dingy white. Shutterless windows without blinds stared down upon them, shining here and there in the moonlight. There were weather streaks in the wall and cracks in the paint, and the balcony bulged out from the first floor a little unnaturally. But... Beyond this generally forlorn appearance of an unoccupied house, there was nothing at first sight to single out this particular mansion for the evil character that it most certainly has acquired. They went boldly up the steps and stood against the huge black door that fronted them forbiddingly. But the first wave of nervousness was now upon them, and Shorthouse fumbled a long time with the key before he could fit it into the lock at all. For a moment, if truth were told... They both hoped it would not open, for they were a prey to various unpleasant emotions as they stood there on the threshold of their ghostly adventure. Shorthouse, shuffling with the keys and hampered by the steady weight on his arm, certainly felt the solemnity of the moment. It was as if the whole world, for all experience seemed at that instant concentrated in his own consciousness, were listening to the grating noise of that key. A stray puff of wind, wandering down the empty street, woke a momentary rustling in the trees behind them. But, otherwise, this rattling of the keys was the only sound audible. And at last it turned in the lock, and the heavy door swung open and revealed a yawning gulf of darkness beyond. With a last glance at the moonlit square, they passed quickly in, and the door slammed behind them with a roar that echoed prodigiously through empty halls and passages. But, instantly, with the echoes, another sound made itself heard, and Aunt Julia leaned suddenly so heavily upon him that he had to take a step backwards to save himself from falling. A man had coughed close beside them, so close that it seemed they must have been actually by his side in the darkness. 
With the possibility of practical jokes in mind, Shorthouse at once swung his heavy stick in the direction of the sound, but it met nothing more solid than air. He heard his aunt give a little gasp beside him. There's someone here, she whispered. I heard him. Be quiet, he said sternly. It was nothing but the noise of the front door. Oh, get a light, quick, she added, as her nephew, fumbling with a box of matches, opened it upside down and let them all fall with a rattle on the stone floor. The sound, however, was not repeated, and there was no evidence of retreating footsteps. In another minute, they had a candle burning, using an empty end of a cigar case as a holder. And when the first flare had died down, he held the impromptu lamp aloft and surveyed the scene. And it was dreary enough in all conscience, for there is nothing more desolate than all the abodes of men, than an unfurnished house dimly lit, silent and forsaken, and yet tenanted by rumour with the memories of evil and violent histories. They were standing in a wide hallway. On their left was the open door of a spacious dining room, and in front the hall ran, ever narrowing, into a long dark passage that led apparently to the top of the kitchen stairs. The broad, uncarpeted staircase rose in a sweep before them, everywhere draped in shadows, except for a single spot about halfway up where the moonlight came in through the windows and fell on a bright patch on the boards. This shaft of light shed a faint radiance above and below it, lending to the object within its reach a misty outline that was infinitely more suggestive and ghostly than complete darkness. Filtered moonlight always seems to paint faces on the surrounding gloom, and as Shorthouse peered up into the well of darkness and thought of the countless empty rooms and passages in the upper part of the old house, he caught himself longing again for the safety of the moonlit square or the cosy bright drawing room they had left an hour before. Then realizing these thoughts are dangerous, he thrust them away again and summoned all his energy on concentration for the present. Aunt Julia, he said aloud, severely, we must now go through the house from top to bottom and make a thorough search. The echoes of his voice died away slowly all over the building. And in the intense silence that followed, he turned to look at her. In the candlelight, he saw that her face was already ghastly pale. But she dropped his arm for a moment and said in a whisper, stepping close in front of him, I agree. We must be sure there's no one hiding. That's the first thing. She spoke with evident effort, and he looked at her with admiration. You feel quite sure of yourself? It's not too late. I think so, she whispered, her eyes shifting nervously towards the shadows behind. Quite sure. Only one thing. What's that? You must never leave me alone, for an instant. As long as you understand that any sound or appearance must be investigated at once, for to hesitate is to admit fear. That is fatal. Agreed, she said, a little shakily, after a moment's hesitation. I'll try. Arm in arm, Shorthouse holding the dripping candle and the stick, while his aunt carried the cloak over her shoulders, Figures of utter comedy to all but themselves. They began a systematic search. Stealthily, walking on tiptoe, 
and shading the candle lest it betray their presence. Through the shutterless windows, they went first into the big dining room. There was not a stick of furniture to be seen. Bare walls, ugly mantelpieces and empty grates stared at them. Everything, they felt, resented their intrusion. Watching them, as it were, with veiled eyes. Whispers followed them. Shadows flitted noiselessly. Something seemed ever at their back, watching, waiting an opportunity to do them injury. There was the inevitable sense that operations which went on when the room was empty had been temporarily suspended till they were well out of the way again. The whole dark interior of the old building seemed to become a malignant presence that rose up, warning them to desist and mind their own business. Every moment, the strain on their nerves increased. Out of the gloomy dining room, they passed through large folding doors into a sort of library or smoking room, wrapped equally in silence, darkness, and dust. And from this, they regained the hall near the top of the back stairs. Here, a pitch-black tunnel opened before them into the lower regions, and, it must be confessed, they hesitated. But only for a minute. With the worst of the night still to come, it was essential to turn from nothing. Aunt Julia stumbled at the top step of the dark descent, ill-lit by the flickering candle, and even Shorthouse felt at least half the decision go out of his legs. He said preemptively, and his voice ran on and got lost in the dark empty spaces below. I'm coming, she faltered, catching his arm with unnecessary violence. They went a little unsteadily down the stone steps, a cold, damp air meeting them in the face, close and malodorous. The kitchen into which the stairs led along a narrow passage was large, with a lofty ceiling. Several doors opened out of it, some into cupboards with empty jars still standing on the shelves, and others into horrible little ghostly back offices, each colder and less inviting than the last. Black beetles scurried over the floor. And once, when they knocked against a deal table standing in a corner, something about the size of a cat jumped down with a rush and fled, scampering across the stone floor into the darkness. Everywhere there was a sense of recent occupation, an impression of sadness and gloom. Leaving the main kitchen, they next went towards the scullery. The door was standing ajar, and as they pushed it open, to its full extent, Aunt Julia uttered a piercing scream which she instantly tried to stifle by placing her hand over her mouth. For a second, Shorthouse stood stock still, catching his breath. He felt as if his spine had suddenly become hollow, and someone had filled it with particles of ice. Facing them, directly in their way between the doorposts, stood the figure of a woman. She had disheveled hair, and wildly staring eyes, and her face was as white as death. She stood there, motionless, for the space of a single second. Then the candle flickered, and she was gone. Gone utterly. And the door framed nothing but empty darkness. It's only the beastly jumping candlelight, he said quickly, in a voice that sounded like someone else's, and was only half under control. Come on, aunt, there's nothing there. He dragged her forward. With a clattering of feet, and a great appearance of boldness they went on. But over his body the skin moved, 
as if crawling ants covered it, and he knew, by the weight on his arm, that he was supplying the force of locomotion for two. The scullery was cold, bare and empty, more like a large prison cell than anything else. They went round it, tried the door into the yard and the windows, but found them all fastened securely. His aunt moved beside him like a person in a dream. Her eyes were tightly shut, and she seemed merely to follow the pressure of his arm. Her courage filled him with amazement. At the same time, he noticed that a certain odd change had come over her face, a change which somehow evaded his power of analysis. There's nothing here, auntie, he repeated aloud quickly. Let's go upstairs and see the rest of the house. Then we'll choose a room to wait up in. She followed him obediently, keeping close to his side, and they locked the kitchen door behind them. It was a relief to get up again. In the hall there was more light than before, for the moon had travelled a little further down the stairs. Cautiously they began to go up into the dark vault of the upper house, the boards creaking under their weight. On the first floor they found the large double drawing rooms, a search of which revealed nothing. Here also was no sign of furniture or recent occupancy, nothing but dust and neglect and shadows. They opened the big folding doors between front and back drawing rooms, and then came out again to the landing, and went on upstairs. They had not gone up more than a dozen steps, when they both simultaneously stopped to listen. Looking into each other's eyes, with a new apprehension across the flickering candle flame, from the rooms they had hardly left ten seconds before, came the sound of doors quietly closing. It was beyond all question. They heard the booming noise that accompanies the shutting of heavy doors, followed by the sharp catching of the latch. We must go back and see, said Shorthouse briefly, in a low tone and turning to go downstairs again. Somehow she managed to drag after him, her feet catching in her dress, her face, livid. When they entered the front drawing room, it was plain that the folding doors had been closed half a minute before. Without hesitation, Shorthouse opened them. He almost expected to see someone facing him in the back room, but only darkness and cold air met him. They went through both rooms, finding nothing unusual. They tried in every way to make the doors close on themselves, but there was not wind enough even to set the candle flame flickering. The doors would not move without strong pressure. All was silent as the grave. Undeniably the rooms were utterly empty and the house utterly still. It's beginning, whispered a voice at his elbow, which he hardly recognized as his aunt's. He nodded acquiescence, taking out his watch to note the time. It was fifteen minutes before midnight, he made the entry of exactly what had occurred in his notebook, setting the candle in its case upon the floor in order to do so. It took a moment or two to balance it safely against the wall. Aunt Julia always declared that at this moment she was not actually watching him, but had turned her head towards the inner room, where she fancied she heard something moving. But at any rate, both positively agreed that there came a sound of rushing feet, heavy and very swift and the next instant, the candle was out. But to Shorthouse himself had come more than this, and he has always thanked his fortunate stars that it came to him alone and not to his aunt too. 
for as he rose from the stooping position of balancing the candle, and before it was actually extinguished, a face thrust itself forward so close to his own that he could almost have touched it with his lips. It was a face working with passion, a man's face, dark with thick features and angry savage eyes. It belonged to a common man, and it was evil in its ordinary normal expression, no doubt. But as he saw it, alive with intense, aggressive emotion, it was a malignant and terrible human countenance. There was no movement of the air, nothing but the sound of rushing feet, stockinged or muffled feet, the apparition of the face, and the almost simultaneous extinguishing of the candle. In spite of himself, Shorthouse uttered a little cry, nearly losing his balance as his aunt clung to him with her whole weight in one moment of real uncontrollable terror. She made no sound, but simply seized him bodily. Fortunately, however, she had seen nothing, but had only heard the rushing feet, for her control returned almost at once, and he was able to disentangle himself and strike a match. The shadows ran away on all sides before the glare, and his aunt stooped down and groped for the cigar case with the precious candle. Then they discovered that the candle had not been blown out at all. It had been crushed out. The wick was pressed down into the wax, which was flattened as if by some smooth, heavy instrument. How his companion so quickly overcame her terror, Shorthouse never properly understood. But his admiration for her self-control increased tenfold, and at that same time served to feed his own dying flame, for which he was undeniably grateful. Equally inexplicable to him was the evidence of physical force they had just witnessed. He at once suppressed the memories of stories he had heard of physical mediums and their dangerous phenomena. For if these were true, and either his aunt or himself was unwittingly a physical medium, it meant that they were simply aiding to focus the forces of a haunted house already charged to the brim. It was like walking with unprotected lamps amongst uncovered stores of gunpowder. So, with as little reflection as possible, he simply relit the candle and went up the next floor. The arm in his trembled, it is true, and his own tread was often uncertain. But they went on with thoroughness, and after a search revealing nothing, they climbed the last flight of stairs to the top floor of all. Here, they found a perfect nest of small servants' rooms with broken pieces of furniture, dirty cane-bottomed chairs, chests of drawers, cracked mirrors, and decrepit bedsteads. The room had low sloping ceilings, already hung here and there with cobwebs, small windows, and badly plastered walls, a depressing and dismal region which they were glad to leave behind. It was on the stroke of midnight when they entered a small room on the third floor, close to the top of the stairs, and arranged to make themselves comfortable for the remainder of their adventure. It was absolutely bare. It was said to be the room, then used as a clothes closet, into which the infuriated groom had chased his victim and finally caught her. Outside, across the narrow landing, began the stairs leading up to the floor above, and the servants' quarters where they had just searched. In spite of the chillness of the night, there was something in the air of this room that cried for an open window. But there was more than this. Shorthouse 
could only describe it by saying that he felt less master of himself here than in any other part of the house. There was something that acted directly on the nerves, tiring the resolution and feebling the will. He was conscious of this result before he'd been in the room five minutes, and it was in the short time they stayed there that he suffered the wholesale depletion of his vital forces, which was, for himself, the chief horror of the whole experience. They put the candle on the floor of the cupboard, leaving the door a few inches ajar, so there was no glare to confuse the eyes, and no shadow to shift about on walls and ceilings. Then they spread the cloak on the floor and sat down to wait, with their backs against the wall. Shorthouse was within two feet of the door onto the landing. His position commanded a good view of the main staircase leading down into the darkness, and also of the beginning of the servant stairs going to the floor above. The heavy stick lay beside him within easy reach. The moon was now high above the house. Through the open window they could see the comforting stars like friendly eyes watching in the sky. One by one, the clocks of the town struck midnight, and when the sounds died away, the deep silence of a windless night fell again over everything. Far away and lugubrious, filled the air with hollow murmurs. Inside the house, the silence became awful. Awful, he thought, because any minute now, it might be broken by sounds of portending terror. The strain of waiting told more and more severely on the nerves. They talked in whispers when they talked at all, for their voices aloud sounded queer and unnatural. A chillness not altogether due to the night air invaded the room and made them cold. The influences against them, whatever these may be, were slowly robbing them of self-confidence and the power of decisive action. Their forces were on the wane, and the possibility of real fear took on a new and terrible meaning. He began to tremble for the elderly woman by his side, whose pluck could hardly save her beyond a certain extent. He heard the blood singing in his veins. It sometimes seemed so loud that he fancied it prevented his hearing properly. Certain other sounds that were beginning very faintly to make themselves audible in the depths of the house. Every time he fastened his attention on these sounds, they instantly ceased. They certainly came no nearer, yet he could not rid himself of the idea that movement was going on somewhere in the lower regions of the house. The drawing room floor, where the doors had been so strangely closed, seemed too near. The sounds were further off than that. He thought of the great kitchen, with the scurrying black beetles, and of the dismal little scullery. Somehow or other, they did not seem to come from there either. Surely they were not outside the house. Then, suddenly, the truth flashed into his mind, and for the space of a minute, he felt as if his blood had stopped flowing and turned to ice. The sounds were not downstairs at all. They were upstairs. Upstairs somewhere amongst those horrid, gloomy little servant rooms with their bits of broken furniture, low ceilings, and cramped windows. Upstairs, where the victim had first been disturbed and stalked to her death. And the moment he discovered where the sounds were, he began to hear them more clearly. It was the sound of feet moving stealthily along the passage overhead, in and out among the rooms, and past the furniture. He turned quickly 
to steal a glance at the motionless figure seated beside him, to note whether she had shared his discovery. The faint candlelight coming through the crack in the cupboard door threw her strongly marked face into vivid relief against the white of the wall. But it was something else that made him catch his breath and stare again. An extraordinary something that had come into her face and seemed to spread over her features like a mask. It smoothed out the deep lines and drew the skin everywhere a little tighter so that the wrinkles disappeared. It brought into her face, with the sole exception of the old eyes, an appearance of youth and almost of childhood. He stared in speechless amazement. Amazement that was dangerously near to horror. It was his aunt's face indeed, but it was her face of forty years ago. The vacant, innocent face of a girl. He had heard stories of that strange effect of terror, which could wipe a human countenance clean of other emotions, obliterating all previous expressions. But he had never realized that it could be literally true or could mean anything so simply horrible as what he now saw. For the dreadful signature of overmastering fear was written plainly in the utter vacancy of the girlish face beside him. And when, feeling his intense gaze, she turned to look at him, he instinctively closed his eyes tightly to shut out the sight. Yet, when he turned a minute later, his feelings well in hand, he saw, to his intense relief, another expression. His aunt was smiling. And though the face was deathly white, the awful veil had lifted and the normal look was returning. Anything wrong was all he could think of to say at that moment. And the answer was eloquent coming from such a woman. I feel cold and a little frightened, she whispered. He offered to close the window, but she seized hold of him and begged him not to leave her side even for an instant. It's upstairs, I know she whispered with an odd half-laugh. But I can't possibly go up. But Shorthouse thought otherwise, knowing that in action lay their best hope of self-control. He took the brandy flask and poured out a glass of neat spirit, stiff enough to help anybody over anything. She swallowed it with a little shiver. His only idea now was to get out of the house before her collapse became inevitable. But this could not safely be done by turning tail and running from the enemy. Inaction was no longer possible. Every minute he was growing less master of himself and desperate. Aggressive measures were imperative without further delay. Moreover, the action must be taken towards the enemy, not away from it. The climax, if necessary and unavoidable, would have to be faced boldly. He could do it now, but in ten minutes he might not have the force left to act for himself, much less for both. Upstairs, the sounds were meanwhile becoming louder and closer accompanied by occasional creaking of the boards. Someone was moving stealthily about, stumbling every now and then awkwardly against the furniture, waiting a few moments to allow the tremendous dose of spirits to produce its effect, and knowing this would last but a short time under the circumstances, Shorthouse then quietly got on his feet, saying in a determined voice, Now, Aunt Julia, we'll go upstairs and find out what all this noise is about. You must come too. It's what we agreed. He picked up his stick and went to the cupboard for the candle. A limp form rose, shakily beside him, breathing hard. And he heard a voice say very faintly something about being 
ready to come. The woman's courage amazed him. It was so much greater than his own. And, as they advanced, holding aloft the dripping candle, some subtle force exhaled from this trembling white old-faced woman at his side that was the true source of his inspiration. It held something really great that shamed him and gave him the support without which he would have proved far less equal to the occasion. They crossed the dark landing, avoiding with their eyes the deep black space over the banisters. Then they began to mount the narrow staircase to meet the sound which, minute by minute, grew louder and nearer. About halfway up the stairs, Aunt Julia stumbled, and Shorthouse turned to catch her by the arm. And just at that moment, there came a terrific crash in the servant's corridor overhead. It was instantly followed by a shrill, agonized scream that was a cry of terror and a cry for help melted into one. Before they could move aside or go down a single step, someone came rushing along the passage overhead, blundering horribly, racing madly at full speed three steps at a time, down the very staircase where they stood. The steps were light and uncertain, but close behind them sounded the heavier tread of another person, and the staircase seemed to shake. Shorthouse and his companion just had time to flatten themselves against the wall when the jumble of flying steps was upon them and two persons, with the slightest possible interval between them, dashed past at full speed. It was a perfect whirlwind of sound breaking in on the midnight silence of the empty building. The two runners, pursuer and pursued, had passed clean through them where they stood, and already with a thud, the boards below had received first one, then the other. Yet they had seen absolutely nothing, not a hand or arm or face or even a shred of flying clothing. There came a second's pause. Then the first one, the lighter of the two, obviously the pursued one, ran with uncertain footsteps into the little room which Shorthouse and his aunt had just left. The heavier one followed. There was a sound of scuffling, gasping, and smothered screaming, and then out onto the landing came the step of a single person treading, weightily. A dead silence followed for the space of half a minute and then was heard a rushing sound through the air. It was followed by a dull, crashing thud in the depths of the house below, on the stone floor of the hall. Utter silence reigned after. Nothing moved. The flame of the candle was steady. It had been steady the whole time, and the air had been undisturbed by any movement whatsoever. Palsied with terror, Aunt Julia, without waiting for her companion, began fumbling her way downstairs. She was crying gently to herself, and when Shorthouse put his arm around her and half carried her, he felt that she was trembling like a leaf. He went into the little room and picked up the cloak from the floor, and arm in arm, walking very slowly without speaking a word or looking once behind them, they marched down the three flights into the hall. In the hall they saw nothing, but the whole way down the stairs, they were conscious that someone followed them, step by step. When they went faster, it was left behind, and when they went more slowly, it caught them up. But never once did they look behind to see, and at each turning of the staircase, they lowered their eyes for fear of the following horror they might see upon the stairs above. With trembling hands, Shorthouse opened the front door, and they walked out into the moonlight and drew a deep breath 
of the cool night air blowing in from the sea. That was Algernon Blackwood's terrific The Empty House, as read by Tale Teller from the Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales podcast, producing episodes every single weekday just for your lovely ears. He covers no sleep, secure, contain, protect, true horror stories, old-time radio episodes, creepypasta, paranormal, and so much more. The stories you listen to on his podcast are always unique and different. His podcast also focuses on turning listeners into authors. Many stories that you hear are actually submitted by listeners of the show, empowering others to starting their creative writing journey. Feel free to drop him an email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com with your own stories and suggestions, and you can find the show on any podcast catcher or Google by searching Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales podcast. Thank you, Mr. Taleteller. Our second story of the night was nominated for the 2017 Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. Annie Neugbauer is a Bram Stoker Award-nominated author with work appearing and forthcoming in more than 100 publications, including magazines such as Cemetery Dance, Apex, and Black Static, and anthologies such as Year's Best Hardcore Horror Volume 3 and Number 1 Amazon Bestseller, Killing It Softly. She's a columnist for Writer Unboxed and Lit Reactor. You can visit her at www.annienugbauer.com. Link will, of course, be in the show notes. The story we will now hear is Annie Neugbauer's So Sings the Siren, nominated for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction, originally appearing in Apex Magazine, Issue 101, and Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Volume 3. You can hold yourself back from the sufferings of the world. That is something you are free to do, and it accords with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could avoid. Franz Kafka When the woman moved forward to order, the girl stepped within her shadow. A vodka sprite, please, and a bag of peanut M&M's. The girl tugged on her mother's brushed satin dress. Mom, I'm thirsty too. The woman glanced over her shoulder. There's a water fountain by the bathroom, sweetie. I'm not paying six dollars for a bottle of water. The girl returned her hand to her own dress of royal blue velvet, a fabric both heavy and soft. She liked to rub a fold of it between her fingers, feeling the nubby pile slip back and forth under her thumb. The dress's straps kept slipping from her shoulders beneath her sweater. Her mother bought it one size too big so she could wear it again next year. The girl didn't mind. It was the most beautiful dress she'd ever had. The woman sat on an upholstered bench in the hallway, sipping her drink, but the girl couldn't sit still. She twirled to make her skirt flare, dancing back and forth across the hall as she crunched her candy. Hurry up, sweetie. We can't take those in with us. 
The girl poured more M&Ms into her mouth, then spoke around them. Mom? Hmm? Will the siren have wings? Yes, she should. I think they always have wings. What color will they be? Whatever color her skin is, probably. The girl twirled. Will she have bird feet and a beak? The woman smiled. No, that's a myth. Stay here for a minute. Finish your candy. The woman walked down the hall and around the corner to throw away her empty plastic glass. The girl rubbed her skirt between her fingers, tipped back the bag, and spun and spun and spun. She bumped into a man. Sorry, she muttered, glancing up at him. He was tall and crooked. That's all right, he said. So much energy, best to get it out now. You'll be sitting still for a long time. The girl glanced down the hall to where her mother had gone, then eyed the man warily. How long? That depends on the musician. The best ones can draw it out for hours. Hours? He wiggled his eyebrows. Hours. Is this the first time you've come to hear a siren sing? She nodded, crushing velvet between her fingers. Is that your mom you're with? Another nod. Did you get seats on the floor or up in the mezzanine? He asked. She glanced to the corner. We have a box. Oh, I see. Does it face the stage or the audience? Velvet specks stuck to the dew on her fingertips. The audience. Ah. The man straightened himself. That's a shame. You won't be able to see the siren's face that way. What does it look like? The man wobbled his jaw. Her face is contorted in beautiful agony. Her pain is what draws the beauty of her voice in contrast. The better the musician, the more beautiful her song. The mother hurried toward them. The girl asked the man, What does he do to her? Surely your mother told you that he tortures her. Yes, but how? If you face the stage, you would see for yourself. You would see the tools and methods he uses to play his instrument. He is a master, this man. A true artist. Her mother took the girl by the hand and pulled her several steps away. I have no desire to see his vulgar artistry, nor for my daughter's mind to be filled with such things. The man raised his eyebrows. The siren is willing. You don't respect the musician's work? The lights dimmed off and on. Crowds of murmuring people moved toward the auditorium. I respect the song itself and the siren for sacrificing herself to give it. I respect the musician for drawing it from her, as is her wish. She raised her chin. But I do not respect those who would watch the musician do his work rather than listen to the song. The musician is always a sick man. A madman. The man said, Yes, he must have an exquisite sort of madness to do what he does without breaking. Playing the song of a siren is not for the weak of will, 
nor the weak of heart. The woman dipped her head in strained acknowledgement and turned to leave. The man added, What with the prying up of fingernails, the spindling of intestines, the flaying of skin? God forbid we see where the beauty is coming from. The woman gasped, dragging the girl by the arm into the crowd. When the girl looked back, the man was shaking his head softly to himself. Then the cool, muted cave of the performance hall enveloped them. The brightest part of the room was the dim spotlight on the stage, where a beautiful but ordinary-looking woman sat on an empty stool in front of closed curtains. "'Where are her wings?' the girl whispered. Everyone whispered here. When her mother didn't answer, the girl tugged on her dress. "'Where are the sirens' wings?' Oh, they're down right now, sweetie, closed like a bird, not out like a butterfly. They won't show until the musician spreads her arms. Mom, can I watch the stage when they start? Just for a little bit? Her mother didn't stop her path toward their box. Not until you're older. The lights flickered on and off several times, and the entire room sunk into silence at once, seated but fidgeting. From her seat, the girl watched them in the darkness. An announcer introduced the musician, then the siren, who said in a soft voice that she was honored to be here sharing her art, that she could imagine no better cause for a life. Clinks and shifting from the stage punctuated long moments of silence. Finally, the audience members grew still. The air grew thick, and a collective gasp charged the room. The siren began to sing. It was unlike any music the girl had ever heard. There were no instruments, no lyrics, not even a melody to carry the voice along, but the girl knew at once that, somehow, it was still a song. She rubbed the nap of her skirt, leaning forward. The audience members' faces grew taut and full of emotions the girl couldn't name. The siren's voice grew and grew, filling the space with perfect clarity, slipping between notes in a way wholly unpredictable, yet perfect. Some women fainted. A few couples got up and left. One man vomited into a bag even as he wept. Eventually, the girl closed her eyes and listened, crushing velvet between her fingers, and let the song fill her up with something she would someday learn was worth suffering for. So felt the girl that night. So sang the siren. That was Annie Neugbauer's So Sings the Siren, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her.
She lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband and her spoiled, rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. That'll be your show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.